Good to see everybody this morning on a 4th of July. We hope the rest of your day is filled with, filled with fireworks, hot dogs, and all that red, white, and blue stuff. Um, and it, it's amazing, too, that there's still so many people in town because uh, we just assumed this summer would be, since the economy's good and COVID is kind of on, on its heels, that most people would just be gone the entire summer. So we're glad you guys are here. Um, we're continuing our Influencer Series today. And just kind of in a, a different spot, and I got a wobbly table, so it's going to be dangerous for my ADD. Um, so just go ahead and pray now. Uh, so throughout the course of this series, we've kind of looked at several different people that have wielded different influence, and we've asked some questions as to why do we listen to them, and, and how do we process this? What does it look like when someone's influencing us? What does it look like when we're influencing others? Um, today, we're going to look at not the entire picture of influence, but just a snippet um, of Paul and Timothy's life. You know, Paul and Timothy's life is probably our best example of what discipleship looks like. You know, it took place over 20-plus years. Um, we see it begin in Acts and we see that Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he comes across this town. He meets this young guy named Timothy, and he's already a believer, and he just looks at him, and he sees something that's, like, really worth investing in. And so from that point on, he kind of brings Timothy in and treats him like a son, and he goes on several missionary journeys with him. Eventually, he's released to, to kind of plant the church and establish the church in Ephesus. Uh, we have First Timothy written to him as kind of a, a father to a son or a pastoral to an under-pastor kind of a thing, and Second Timothy is kind of a continuation of that. And we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and, and turn there with us. Um, some neat things in here today. Uh, I think uh, it, would, it would be easy for us to write this passage off as entirely pastoral, you know, because Paul is speaking to Timothy as an older pastor to a younger pastor, saying, look, when you are shepherding the people, kind of do it like this. But I think there's also some really big universal ideas, because it's kind of what's good for the goose is good for the gander, an idea. Uh, if it's being asked of the pastors, it's most likely being passed on or should be passed on to those who are being shepherded by that pastor or uh, the people within the flock. And so we're going to look at kind of the universal ideas that we have here today um, and it's just, man, it's, it's neat, because I, I hadn't intended to do this particular passage in this series, but uh, this kind of came up in a Bible study that we have on, on Wednesday mornings with a couple guys, and um, just looked at it, and I was like, man, that's incredibly appropriate for, like, right now. Uh, because we've acknowledged this, and we've mentioned this, like, over the past year and a half, probably, man, probably one of the most divisive times in recent history, as far as not just this country, but even within the church, uh, there have been so many particular opportunities or stances that we could take, and if we latched onto them really, really hard, it would be really easy to break some good things, to break relationships, to break family, to do all this types of stuff. And in this particular passage, there's just there's some good warnings here. Um, kind of acknowledging this before we jump into it, this is not correction. You know, Paul is not flying into Timothy and saying, hey, Timothy, you've done some things wrong. You need to fix this. It's more a lot kind of like we talked about last week, some encouraging ideas of, of just you're doing good, but here are some things that we need to think about, some ideas that we need to dwell on. And so we're going to be in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14, but I'm going to pray, and we're just going to read this text and see a few things this morning. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Uh, we thank you for the power of the gospel. Uh, that because of the gospel, the good news that Jesus brought uh, into, into history, God, we can know you, we can be owned by you, we can be known by you, um, and God, you can bring about life change in others as a result. Uh, God, thank you that you trust us with hope. Thank you that you grant us salvation. 
God, today as a result of who you are and who you're calling us to be, I pray that we would look at your word well. I pray that it would speak to us. And God, ultimately, I pray your spirit would use us to make us look more and more like Jesus. Uh, We thank you for loving us. We thank you for guiding us. And God, we thank you for saving us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. It says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use." Set apart is holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness." God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so again, very fatherly advice to an underling, to a a spiritual son, but also pastoral to a younger pastor. But to us as believers, like I think there's some incredibly pertinent ideas for us. Like I am, uh, yeah, I'm not opposed to social media. I'm not. But I think social media has done a few things for us. I think it's allowed us to voice our opinion without the fear of it hurting people's feelings. And almost, it, it, we feel like it gives us license and liberty to, I have a thought, I need to share that thought, people need to hear my thought. And as a result, man, we can alienate, we can separate, we can cut, we can divide, we can do all of these things. And so I, I think there's that. But I think in any politically charged season, too, I think there's this, uh, we have this proclivity towards uh, people need to know where I stand. I think over the past year and a half, two years, there's been more than ever this idea that you need to pick a side, and there are two sides, of course, in every situation, which is not true, but you need to pick one, and people need to know where you stand. And so I think Paul's going to address a few things, because these ideas aren't new. They didn't come up as a result of politics in the United States. The United States is a young country. These are not new issues. These have been around for a while. And so I think Paul's giving some super pertinent advice. And and in this particular passage, um, he kind of has a cycle of hitting a topic, going to another one, coming back to that topic, going to another, and coming back. And so there's three ideas that that I think that we need to see this morning. If we start in verse 15, we'll read verse 14 as, as well. It says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I think this brings about this very first idea that keeps recurring in this passage, and it's this, that our words matter. Our words matter. What we say matters. Um, and if we continue on, verses 16 through 18, it says, it's giving us a, a, you know, another idea. It says, but avoid irreverent babble. That irreverent babble in Greek is just empty, is just simply empty talk. 
empty talk, non-productive speech, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. It's like a cancer. It's like something that rots us. It's like something that eventually kills us. If we continue to 23 through 25, uh, again, he comes back to it and he's saying, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil. He's telling Timothy, he's like, look, what we say, what we talk about is important. It's important. And I know there's, there's pressure. I know there's immense, like, man, there's, there's socioeconomic, there's political, there's, there's science-driven, non-science-driven, there's fact-based, there's feeling-based, there's all of these things. There's great pressure for us to pick sides on just about every possible issue. Here's the thing that Paul is telling Timothy. He was like, man, these quarrels about words, this irreverent babble, this empty sound, this, this gangrene that spreads, this foolish, ignorant, these foolish, ignorant controversies that we get into, um, they will make the speaker feel good, but very often they do nothing for the hearer. As a matter of fact, if we endeavor to talk about this stuff so much, as a matter of fact, he says, not only do they, they just make the speaker feel good and they're not good uh, for the hearer, as a matter of fact, they're like a cancer or a gangrene that spreads, like gangrene. The first time I heard about that was watching the epic western Lonesome Dove. I don't know if anybody remembers that one. I love modern westerns, Tombstone being the best modern western. Then there's a, a list that's going down to five. Lonesome Dove's probably number four. But anyway, epic TV miniseries, and I remember somebody hurts his foot, and then he doesn't do anything to deal with it, and eventually the main character played by Robert Duvall, he looks at him, he's like, well, that boy's got gangrene. We either cut that leg off or he dies, you know, that kind of thing. Like gangrene, he's saying, look, this type of speech, these empty sounds coming out of our mouth, this irreverent babble that we entreat in, these things that, that really have no eternal significance but make the speaker feel good, if we continue to speak and dwell on these things and create division, it's like gangrene. If it's not cut off, it kills Man, this is the type of speech that he's warning uh, Timothy against. And again, he's not rebuking Timothy. He's like, look, I'm just giving you wisdom. I'm giving you wisdom. Don't spend your time on these things because ultimately they will divide and they will kill. And the only way to keep them from doing so is to cut off the speaker. So don't. Just don't. These are topics, discussions that, uh, to be honest, it, it usually just makes us feel good to say them. You know, we really don't know that, I mean, we may enter into it originally to think, I need to change people's minds because people need to think like this because this is really important. And so we initially start doing that, but ultimately it leads us, it just makes us feel better and really doesn't lead anybody to changing their mind. It's just good for us. I just need to get it out there. This is my position. You should know what it is. Here it is. But it doesn't, it doesn't fix. It doesn't heal. It doesn't mend. It doesn't perpetuate the kingdom. It just, just lets people know where you stand. Uh, one quote that I read, it said, uh, be sure to taste your words before you spit them out. Be sure to taste your words before you spit them out. I think the questions that we ask when it, when it comes to like a litmus test for this, is this irreverent babble? Is this empty sound? Is it silly myth? I think we have to ask ourselves, is this going to lead to growth or is this going to lead to division? Is, is this going to make things better or is it going to make me feel better? Is this going to help to share, someone, uh, share with someone like eternal truth that has eternal ramifications, or is this just going to reveal uh, immediate preference? What is it going to do? He says, take no part in these things. Do not entreat these things. Do not let these things be here. Taste your words before you spit them out. Weigh them and measure them before they come out of your mouth. And ask yourself, are they going to contribute 
Are they going to divide? Are they going to make anything better? And so I think that's the first thing that he tells us. James 3 gives us a little bit more information about words. It's not going to be up there, but James is probably, in my opinion, one of the most practical books in the New Testament because it was probably chronologically one of the first, wor- first works written in the New Testament, written to the very early church. They didn't even probably have the written Gospels in their hand yet when this was here. And James, the brother of Jesus, is writing to the early church, and he just says this. He warns them first about, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body." That's a bit of sarcasm. He said, if we put bits in the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large, they are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile of the sea can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. He's like, look, if we are claiming Jesus, if we are claiming the unity of the gospel, that's what our mouths need to promote. It does not need to promote division. It does not need to promote separation within the body. It does not need to kill. In this, we have the power of life and death. Taste our words before we spit them out. That's the first thing that we see in this particular passage. The second idea that we we get to, and and I'll be honest, by the third, we're going to come back to both of these. The second idea that we see, we, we see it presented again in verse 15. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. He continues in verses 19 through 22, and he says, um, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. He'll continue a little bit further. Uh, what we need to know in this third idea is that uh, what we do matters. What we do matters. So what we say matters, what comes out of our mouth matters, but also what we do matters. I think there's, there's also this idea, like, you know, I, I remember reading this book by Randy Alcorn, great book, because it was only about 62 pages, and it was called The Grace Truth Paradox. And it was, man, it, it blew my mind at the time, because I grew up, I, like I've talked about, I grew up in the BOBC and the big old Baptist church, nothing wrong with that, but as a result of that upbringing, like I grew to believe that my acceptance of God by God was based upon my performance. The things that I did, the things that I didn't do, we probably all, you know, most of us that grew up in the church at some point or another, we've had to confront this. Are we basing God's approval of us on our performance? That's called legalism. And so the things that I do make me acceptable to God. The things that I don't do or I miss or the things that I do wrong make me unacceptable to God. Problem is that that's completely wrong according to the doctrine of grace. And so, but as a result of adhering to this doctrine of grace, we sometimes move away from truth and we believe that the things that I do now, especially in regards to sin, they just no longer matter because they've been covered, which is a true statement, 
that my sins have been covered, but the problem is what I do still matters. The life of a disciple of following Jesus also means that we're trying to leave other things behind. It says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord, in verse 19, depart from iniquity. Or, if I am calling on Jesus as my Lord, then I need to leave my sin behind. Because what I do matters. What I do matters. We continue to this middle part, which is almost poetic in nature, verses 20 and 21. It says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable or leaves sin behind, departs from iniquity, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And then in verse 22, continuing this idea, so as a result of that, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along those with who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. He says, look, uh, in, in a house, you've got, man, you've got wood and clay silverware, but they're not silverware, they're just flatware, but then you have like silver and gold utensils. Guess what? When something special comes along, the master of the house, he's going to pull out the gold and the silver. My parents had silverware in China, we never used it, so maybe we never had special people over to the house. But either way, like that stuff is reserved by God to be used for very good works. But it says if you want to be used for those good works, then you actually need to do a couple things. The first is you do your part or cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. You repent, you confess, you leave sin behind. But when I look at this, I look at this as us playing our part in sanctification. God sets us apart. He pulls us out of the world and places us into his kingdom, and then it's not over. Like, his is the saving work, his is the redeeming work, and he is making us into people that look more and more like Jesus. But he asks us to participate. One is we leave iniquity behind. The other is we make the active commitment on our part to cleanse ourselves from unrighteousness. That means we willingly choose to leave sin, choosing Jesus instead. And he says, when you do that, you're making yourself not acceptable in the sense of, of eternally secure in salvation, but you're making yourself ready for every good work, which according to Ephesians 2.10, God made before he even made us. And he's wanting to take people that he redeems and place them into those good works, into those tasks. And he says, not only do we leave the iniquity behind, not only do we prepare ourselves to be used, he says, you also make a point not just to repent, not just to confess, but he says, flee. Like, run from. This is the same phrasing that we see with sexual sin as it comes up in, in Corinthians. He's like, look, flee, run from that, get away. He says this part right here, after you've understood that God wants to use you for honorable purposes, when you see those things that move you towards sin, when you were a child and you couldn't resist, now you're an adult, you're being grown into maturity by the Holy Spirit. He says, when you see those things, run from them. Don't tiptoe to the line. Don't get close enough that you can say, I'm okay, I'm big enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, I can resist. No, he says run from youthful passions, like get away from them. Put them out of sight. And we're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about even thinking about temptation sin, but we're talking about common sense. Like if we want to play our part in sanctification, look more and more like Jesus because that's his desire for us, then that means if we know that there's a pattern that exists to lead me towards sin, then I get away from that pattern. Like, you, you just know. And we can be honest enough with ourselves to know the sins that continually come back into the forefront of our life. What are those things? What leads us to those things? And what do we need to do to stop them? 
Maybe the first thing is, yes, we confess to God, we repent of that, but then we confess to somebody else. We tell somebody else within our family, like, hey, this is the things that I struggle with. As a matter of fact, he says, before we read the middle, he says, so flee youthful passion, skip a little bit, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He's like, I want you to do these things together, by the way. I want you to do these things within the context of family, community, quantania, this idea of we have been all united with one God through one Savior, one Spirit, now we're one family. Black, white, yellow, Hispanic, Asian, American, American, African, it doesn't matter, one family. And he says, I want you to pursue me together. Together. So he says, flee youthful passions, but then he gives a second part too, that you know, sometimes maybe some of us, we're like really good at avoiding sin. Yeah, yeah, I haven't sinned in 10 years, liar. But you know, maybe we're really good at that, but he also says this. He says, flee youthful passions contrary to that. Pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue peace. Chase after those things. That's exactly what pursue means. It means you go after them. Yes, we're trusting in the grace of God to make us acceptable to Jesus. Uh, We're trusting in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus to make us right with God. We're trusting in the Holy Spirit to come and live in me as a seal. But guess what? We play our part. We avoid sin, and we chase the things that we need to. It says pursue righteousness, pursue righteous, right living. And that means, yes, we do our best to do the things that are good and right and honorable in the sight of God so that when the time comes, he's ready to use us. I want to be silverware. (laughs) I mean, that's crazy. I don't want to be just stainless steel. Stainless steel is everywhere. Like, I want to be silverware that needs to be polished and used and ready for God's good work. I want to be that. Man, we need to strive to be useful. And the way that we strive to be useful is not to become better at a task, but is to become more like Jesus. So we leave the, the sinful stuff and we pursue instead the righteous things. Controversy was was coming out of this guy named Hymenaeus, and he was, he was talking about this idea, mostly, most likely a, a heretical notion that uh, we're already living in the new heaven kind of an idea. The resurrection that he's talking about is, hey, we're already there. This is not a new idea. It started back then. It's a, it's a new idea. So what he was meaning is, you know what, it doesn't matter what you do anymore because we're already in heaven. Our bodies can no longer be defiled, sin no longer. It doesn't matter anymore. We're good. So just do that. problem is that's just not true. If that was God's plan, he would have relocate, relocated us the moment that we entered into covenant relationship with him, but he didn't. He changed our relationship status permanently and eternally, but he left us here so that we could continue the work that Jesus started. Because what we do matters. Here's the third idea. Here's the third idea, and I think that it informs the first two in a huge way. First part of 14, it says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. In 16 through 18, he continues this thought just a little bit more, talking about the gangrene, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And then in 25 and 26, he says, uh, I'll start in 24, it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here's the third thing, and I think we forget this too. So not only do our words matter, not only is what we do matter, uh, but, man, other people matter. Other people matter. Man, I, I love being in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Like, I'm super grateful for it. Like, I'm, I, I can acknowledge that as far as, 
history will stand. The contribution of America has been this, that more missionaries have been sent out of this country as a result of the freedom that we were granted uh, than any other country in history. Now, that may change moving forward, but up until now, more missionaries have been sent out of this country to people that need to hear about the gospel than any other country in the world, and it continues to happen now. And as a result, people have seen their sin, confessed, repented. Here's the problem, though. We've also been taught in America that I matter, that my stuff matters, that other people can take care of their junk, but this is about me. The problem is, I think that's contrary to Scripture. I do matter, I do, but Jesus says, look, the the law can be summed up into two things, Uh, hero Israel. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have, but then love your neighbor as yourself. In, in other words, look, hey, your neighbor, you need to want the exact same things for them that you want for you. As a matter of fact, maybe even want more for them than you want for yourself. Other people matter. He starts giving these warnings. He's like, look, don't enter into this empty talk. Why? Because it affects people, other people, negatively. Don't enter into a reverent babble. Why? Because it's like gangrene. It spreads, and somebody's going to die. And then he says, look, and then when, whenever we deal with people, even opponents that think differently than us, don't lambash them with truth. Don't lambash them with statistics. Don't go after them trying to injure them. No, go after them with gentleness. Why? Because maybe through that gentleness, God will point them to repentance, and they may turn and call on him as Lord too. And they may be snatched from the hands of the devil so that they can be useful just like you and move from a place of being alienated by their sin into a place of being useful like a good utensil in the master's house. People matter. When we get to a place that my opinion is so important and we're like, I don't care who it offends, we have forgotten Jesus. When I get to a place that I want to speak my peace so bad that I don't care if it pushes someone away, I don't care if it ticks someone off, I don't care what the ramifications are, if I am there, I have forgotten Jesus. Because Jesus said this, I have come to seek and save the lost. And guess what Jesus did when he ascended? He took his heart, he took his passion, he took his mission, and he took it out of his chest and he put it into ours. And he said, now, your heart, your mission, your purpose is the same as mine. And you have now been left here to see that the lost can be sought after, can be found, can be saved. And if you are constantly ticking people off with your words, pushing people away with your opinions, I'm not being like Jesus. And people don't matter to me. And that's a problem. That's a problem if I am claiming Jesus as my Lord because, man, that shows that I want him on Sundays, but I don't care if I want him at all on Mondays. That's a problem. It's called being double-minded. James warns us about that too. He says they're double-minded. They're unstable in all their ways. They can't be trusted. And other people matter. That's why our words matter. That's why our actions matter. Because like my parents always used to tell me, and they were so right, as much as I didn't want to believe them, someone's always listening, someone's always watching. Or someone's always reading, someone's always watching. Our words matter, our actions matter, because people matter. People other than me, people other than you, man, they matter. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and what I do has great bearing on the people that are hearing, responding to, and experiencing the gospel. If I'm seeking to poison the water, that's not Jesus. 
if I'm seeking to go out and live however I want, that's not Jesus. Romans tells us in Romans chapter 5 or chapter 6, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, uh, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from, the, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Our actions, our life, it matters because people are looking to see what new looks like. They need to see it. Another thing my parents used to say is you may be the only Jesus that people are going to see. And that's entirely true. That's a scary thought. So I think it it pulls a couple questions up for us. I think it makes us ask this. uh, What kind of disciples are we trying to make? Okay, what kind of disciples are we trying to make? And what is my life echoing? Because I'll be honest, like, I know. I know that we have a desire for unity, and sometimes our pursuit of unity means I want people to think like me, I want people to vote like me, I want people to uh, react like me. But here's the thing. If that's what we're trying to reproduce, understand that there is no eternal hope in those things. There's no eternal hope in those things. If that's what we're trying to reproduce, if the bulk of my speech, the sum of my attitude is I want people to be like, don't, give me, don't, don't misunderstand me. If I want people to be an American just like me, if that's what we're trying to reproduce, understand that doesn't bring lifelong hope. No country, no government, no political affiliation or lack thereof will save a single person in this life. None. But Jesus can. Jesus can. And my words, my actions, my attitudes, man, if I'm hoping to convey the gospel with all of those things, that's what I must convey. That's what I must convey. And I understand, man, land of the free, home of the brave, it's good, and I'm not knocking that. It's great. It has afforded us some amazing freedoms, and it has done some amazing things. But to be honest, in 150 years, whether or not someone's an American or not, that's not going to save them for eternity. It's just not. But again, Jesus can And he desires to. But his plan A, there is no plan B. His plan A is his church. We must be able to speak hope. We must be able to convey hope. We must be able to show hope. And if we've turned people off before we even get that chance, we're not going to get to. Now, does that mean that you can't have opinions? Nope. Doesn't mean that I can't have opinions. Doesn't mean that I can't have affiliations. But I do think, man, this is a great exercise, and it's awfully painful. Weigh the sum of our words. Go back and look at the past month. Weigh the sum of our words, the sum of our conversations. And, and it's a lot like setting a budget. Like when you set a budget, you go back and you look. Hey, where's all my money gone? I think that was a humbling thing for Abby and I when we started like this budget thing, which I don't know how we ever lived without. But like, where's your money going? Where's your money going? Because that, that will tell you where your heart is, okay? Sum of our words, probably even more so. Weigh the sum of our words, the sum of our conversations, the sum of the things that we're trying to convince people of. Where does that sit? Where's the middle, middle ground of that? And that'll answer the first question that we ask. What kind of disciple are we trying to make? So maybe for us, man, maybe, maybe my first step, weigh those. And man, if, if my goal is to not make disciples of Jesus, because by the way, that was given to all of us as a commandment. 
you know, to go and make disciples. That wasn't just for pastors, deacons, elders, Sunday school teachers, small group leaders. That wasn't just for those. No, that was for all who have called on the name of Jesus, bought by His, bought by his blood, lived in by the Holy Spirit as a seal, directed by Him. Look, I mean, if that's the goal, we need to ask, hey, what kind of disciple am I making? Because we're all making some disciple or another. We're all creating some type of follower. So we need to ask, what does that look like? And if it's, man, to be honest, if it's something other than Jesus, I think our first step is, you know what, God? I've been trying to reproduce the wrong thing. That's confession. The second part of that is repentance. Uh, God, I want to reproduce people that follow you. That's repentance. And then what repentance looks like is turning from trying to reproduce the wrong thing to turning towards reproducing the right thing. And that means that we also need to do our part there and actually change our speech, change our attitude, change our thoughts about what we do. All of these things that he's telling him, your speech matters. What you do matters, and people matter. Same idea. Good for the goose, good for the gander. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you. Thank you for the preeminence of the gospel. That even without me, it would still exist. In spite of me, it exists. And God, I thank you for that. I thank you, God, that uh, that is primary. That is the only source of eternal hope that we can imagine not political affiliation, not uh, what country we're a resident of, but God, do we know you? Have we trusted in you to fix what we could not? And God, do you, do you know us and are we known by you? God, I thank you for the gospel. God, I pray that, that we would be people that see the need for sharing, uh, see the need for actually speaking of the life change that you and you alone can bring. And God, that we would accept the responsibility that we are to be people that make disciples who make disciples. God, I pray that I would realize that on a daily basis. I know there are glimpses, but God, I I pray that on a daily basis I would remember uh, that, God, this is our role. This is our responsibility. Everything else that you've given us is a tool to do that. How do we use it? God, if we are in, in need of repentance and confession, God, I pray your spirit would be clear and direct us towards that, and we would be quick to do it and sincere in doing so. And God, you would use us uh, as one of those fine utensils in the master's house to do good works, to be ready for those. God, I thank you that you want to use us. I know you don't need to, but I know you want to, and God, I thank you for that. God, we love you, we thank you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.